I've learned my lesson, not to forget that. Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Welcome back to the Dune class. This is class nine. Uh, as long as this class seemed at the beginning, that is, you know, when it's sort of, there are several people who told me I was a little bit crazy in scheduling 12 Dune classes. Um, but I knew we were barely going to be able to get through it in 12 classes. Uh, and uh, now that we're in class nine, we're starting to, uh, we're starting to get towards the end of it. Uh, which is uh, um, uh, uh, strange to think of. Uh, anyway, I'm looking forward to getting into book three next time. Um, but, of course, uh, getting to the end of the Dune class, uh, of course, brings me to my first and primary announcement. Many of you will have heard, most of you probably will have heard by now, um, uh, that we are doing our next fundraising campaign. Um, the the, uh, the year is up, our first year of the Mythgard Academy, which has been, I think, such a wonderful success. I have so enjoyed doing these classes. Um, having this opportunity to do classes on whatever books you guys want to talk about um, and being able to just kind of sit down and, uh, and look at each of these works, I have found the Mythgard Academy. Um, such a, such an enriching experience. I've just been really grateful for it. Um, but of course, as you know, we we you know one of the convictions that really uh, drives the Mythgard Academy is to make this free and available to everybody. Not only free to participate as you guys are participating, but of course free to download in perpetuity. All of the classes that we've done are all still available uh, for download. And, you know, those things that we make them free for everybody are not, in fact, uh, cost-free. So um, we, it is time for us to do our second annual fundraiser to, uh, to try to fund the second year of the Mythgard Academy. And uh, I've reached out to several of you, um, and several of you have already done. I, I think I've reached out to most of you. Uh, several of you have already donated, which, is, which, is, uh, uh, which I'm very grateful for. Um, but so I just wanted to make sure you guys were aware of that. Um, we we're doing a, a few things a little bit differently. We've simplified uh, things a little bit. Um, for instance, everybody um, who every this year everybody who donates is going to be able to is going to be able to vote, and you're going to and the, the voting is simplified. Everybody's just going to you get one vote for every dollar that you donate. Um, so it's pretty simple and straightforward. Um, if you donate a hundred dollars, you get to be on the council, the the council of the wise, the nominating council. Um, uh, which is which is a lot of fun. So you get to you get to suggest books that we read and uh, and be part of the discussion. You can lobby uh, for the book that you really want to to do, and then the nominating council uh, has a vote to vote on the slate of finalists that then goes to uh, to all of the uh, to all of the voters. So uh, that and that's been really great. We've had a wonderful group uh, on the council, which has had some really great discussions in uh, in working out what things we're gonna we're gonna do. Neil Ottenstein is putting in an early appeal for Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. I'll do it. You know, as I've said, I'm you know there there are very few there are very few books that I would veto. Um, I'm willing. I'm willing. Um, uh, if you if you guys elect it, I'll do it, um, and I will I will approach it. Uh, uh, you know. Ready to ready to learn. Uh, so far, uh, the books that have been elected have been books with which I'm at least familiar. Someday there might be a book that I don't know, and I'll, I'll be uh, reading it. You know, Gerald Michael or no, Philip Lord suggests uh, Foundation. That'd be great. Um, I actually read that relatively recently, and I I, I really loved it. Uh, <laughs> Matt Herschenroder asks, "Would I veto Twilight?" Nope. If it were elected, I would do it. 
I wouldn't schedule that many classes on it, I think. I think I'd do it relatively quickly, but I'd do it. I would do it. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's open season. It's that, so that process has been a lot of fun, both the voting process and the, uh, and the nominating process. Um, you know, there are also you know, some other scheduled perks that were, um, you know, that we, you know, for, for, for Mythgard stuff, um, for every $250 that you donate, um, you get one of our course packs, so the, 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 the recordings of one of our master's level classes. So if you want to get, you know, the, the, not only the courses that I do, but, you know, if you want to get Get the recordings of Tom Shippey's Tolkien and Philology class, or you know Verlin Flieger's uh, Middle Earth class. Uh, just fantastic, fantastic stuff. Dimitri Femi's Celtic mythology and children's fantasy literature class. There've been so many wonderful classes that uh, um, that we've been able to offer at Mythgard over the last uh, few years. Um, Amy Sturgis's Harry Potter class. Uh, really, really great stuff. Um, so you will, you'll, you'll get a course pack. You will also, um, for every $500 you donate, you will get um, a free auditor seat so you can sit in on one of the classes live. Um, and yes, Brandon, it's the course of your choice for the course packs. Um, and also this year, the other the other change from last year's the other sort of innovation from last year's uh, campaign is that we're now accepting, indeed, encouraging uh, monthly subscriptions instead of just lump donations. Um, so if you want to, um, if you want to do, um, you know. Twenty-one dollars a month, uh, you know, instead of a lump sum of two hundred and fifty, then you know that that will still count as the two fifty. So you can get a, you you can get the the membership on the council and a free course back for the twenty-one dollars a month. Um, funny story. Uh, this this actually this is this is like a, a true behind the scenes conversation in MythGuard. So I was talking to Ed Powell, who who, as most of you know, is uh, Saruman the Wise, uh, the head of the of the, the 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 leader of the Council of the Wise. Um, and his qualifications, of course, for this position are that he has a mind of metal and wheels. So, anyway, um, I, Ed was uh, we, we, were, we were talking about the, the the dollar amounts, and I was tempted to kind of round it and say, uh, um, you know, it's okay. It's, you know, twenty one dollars a month is basically two hundred and fifty dollars, and you know, forty is basically five hundred dollars. Um, but I was like, no, no, we should do 21 a month because then for $500 it can be 42. I was, I was, I'm like, we have to have 40. The number 42 really needs to be involved uh, in this in this campaign. So uh, because I really wanted the number 42 uh, involved, uh, we we. Uh, uh, we, that's 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 totally why it's absolutely a Douglas Adams thing. Um, so uh, and Patrick, I agree. Hitchhiker's Guide would be a fantastic book to read together. Um, uh, I, uh, I I I I I think that's a marvelous suggestion. Um, uh, though I'm still the uh, book that's been a finalist the last two times, Watership Down by Richard Adams. I'm telling you that will be a, that. That totally needs to happen at some point. But anyhow, I'll stop lobbying because um, I try to keep myself impartial and take what comes. But anyhow, I just wanted to tell you guys a little bit more about the process. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am to everybody who donated last year. Um, as I said, this thing has been, it's been so great to be able to do this. I have been wanting uh, to be able to have this kind of free material, um, you know, a way to, to, you know, just kind of reach out and and uh, make this available uh, to folks. Um, 
you know, you guys, you know, as many of you know, I founded Mythgard uh, and Signum, and one of the main reasons that I, um, one of the one of the chief motivations is that I think that the costs of education are are appalling, and I really want to see that. I really want to see excellent in-person education be made available um, to people for much, much less. That's one of the foundational principles of Signum University and the whole thing that we're doing. But of course, there are costs. It does, in fact, cost money to do it. Um, so we can't do everything absolutely for free because we don't have any money. We don't. We're you know we're we're not we're not a we're not a funded institution in that way. We just rely upon the tuition that we receive for our master's degree classes, and uh, the generosity of you know the people who have been uh, participating in our program and really sort of getting behind the vision of what we're doing. So um, you know I. You know, so this is why we, we make our appeal. We're planning to do this every year. We would love to keep the Mythgard Academy going in perpetuity, and it is our hope to be able to add other programs like it. And to, um, uh, you know, we would love to just to, to not only keep doing this, but to do more. So we'll see. Um, you know, we'll see what happens there. Um, but we are certainly uh, very grateful for all of your support. And I just wanted to make sure everybody was aware of that. Um, ooh. Nancy suggesting the last unicorn, all over it. I love the last the last unicorn. It is like one of my top five favorite fantasy books in the non-Tolkien category. Love, love the last unicorn. Piece of genius. Um, made even more uh, wonderful by the fact that Peter Beagle is a delightful person whom I've met on several occasions, um, and. Uh, not, you know, not to try to sway votes or anything, but I bet you, if we elected the last unicorn, I could, I could get, uh, I could get Peter to join us. Um, but again, here I said I would stop campaigning. I'll stop. Um, uh, but anyhow, well, 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 well. <laughs> well, he he came to to our MythMoot conference uh, the first year. Peter Beagle did. Um, we're hoping to have him back uh, sometime soon. Um, anyway. He's uh, he's going. Sean Hyde is now teasing me um, that I like a living author. Um, I, yeah, it's uh, um, I know it's unusual. I do prefer dead authors. Dead authors are so much more convenient. Uh, <laughs> really, it's uh, it's um, yeah yeah. Being a medievalist is so liberating in this way. Um, um, yeah. No. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. But no, I like living authors. It's fine. It's not that I'm. I don't wish any ill to living authors. Okay. I'll stop. Um. Anyway. So that's what's going on. Please do check out our webpage. Is uh, MythGuard.org/academy/donate. Um. So I do hope that you will check it out and spread spread the news. You know, again, for people who are interested in supporting, you know, free education and you know, spreading the word about. You know, being able to do these classes and and you know, fantasy and science fiction, you know, in depth discussion of fantasy and science fiction, you know, I run sort of at the grassroots level like this. This is this is, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I think this is. I hope something that people can really get uh, 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 behind on this. Yeah, Neil is pointing out. Yes, we're going through PayPal this year and not Indiegogo. Yeah, we're we're running it off our own um, website this year, um, just to basically make sure that as as large a percentage as possible uh, of your donation money goes straight to the uh, the campaign. We're kind of cutting out the middleman there, experimenting with that this year, because um, yeah, we do want to do want to maximize the impact of your gift. 
Okay. Um, so, um, oh, and Philip, yeah, if we did The Last Unicorn, we'd totally watch the cartoon movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about Dune because I don't want to get super behind again. We, we're, we're at risk of catching up tonight, so you know I have to be, I have to be cautious. Um, we are at our, uh, our intermission class, our second intermission, uh, now between book two and book three. And uh, there are some things that I do want to go back, um, you know, sort of in review over... Se- I, got, I received a bunch of, um, a bunch of really good um, questions and uh, uh, several... You know, we're, we're definitely going to go back and hit on some of the things that we didn't get to last time. Um, I still didn't get anybody who was clamoring to talk about Jessica and the Reverend Mother stuff. I was a little surprised by that. We might come back to that next time a little bit. Um, but uh, but there was a certain amount of clamor uh, to not skip the Fenrings, so we'll 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 come back to the Fenrings today. Um, but first, I wanted to check in uh, with our overview uh, of the oeuvre of Princess Irulan. Here are the uh, her titles that were quoted from in Book Two, um, and I think that this is one thing that's interesting here is we see a very even distribution. Um, uh, you know, not that many repetitions, um, and the elevation, the only one they got three was in my father's house, which was only represented by one quotation in, in, the, in the first set. And that seems to me an, by itself an interesting kind of shift. Um, notice the shift is away from um, the, the emphasis in book one, again, you know, when we made the similar list at the end of book one, was towards the sort of historical books, right? You know, the family commentaries, um, which don't come up at all in book two. Um, the, uh, uh, the child history of Muad'Dib, uh, the manual of Muad'Dib, both of those still are represented, but, um, um, but they don't really stand out like they did before. Um, now, it's, uh, it, yeah, as uh, Brian Yoder points out, it's starting to talk more about the emperor, exactly. Um, as if this, you know, and of course I think it's not a coincidence that, you know, Paul's imperial ambitions, um, you know, it sort of came out here, and so we're beginning to sort of focus more, th- those, those introductions begin to show us not just background stuff on Paul's family and on, you know, how, on Muad'Dib and how he arose, um, but rather um, we're beginning to get a little bit more of the context. The In My Father's House snippets are to me fascinating. They're a really interesting place to focus, I think, when we think about Princess Irulan's extracts and the role that they play in the story. Um, I, we talked a little bit before about how Princess Irulan herself is, you know, in, in a sense, one of the most present and consistent characters. I mean, she's certainly on the short list of the, of the characters that we hear from most and most frequently, you know, most regularly over the course of the book, even though she never comes into the narrative until the very, very, very end and, 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 and doesn't speak. Um, so she's, um, you know, on the one hand, she's an extremely fringe character, but on the other hand, we know her really well. The other moment where we get that is here, you know, in the In My Father's House passages, um, and that's the Emperor himself. Um, the Emperor himself is another character who, of course, is 
a central figure of the story as a whole, but who is himself absent. Um, we see his representative in the Fenrings, right? That's the, 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 the scene with the Fenrings, one of the things that's interesting about it is it's one of the only times that we have gotten someone who is actually a representative of the Emperor. You know, we, we, we haven't really met the Emperor yet within the main narrative, but at least we get a, a proxy, um, a direct proxy, somebody sent by the Emperor, and who is in some sense speaking with his voice, uh, or humming in his voice. Um, but, um, but the only thing even similar to that before was the Sardaukar um, officer, whom the Baron was trying to get rid of, remember? Um, that That's the only other thing like a genuinely imperial voice. Of course, we've had, we had Kynes, who was theoretically imperial, but there was never any real sense that he was representing the Emperor, you know, that he was any kind of proxy for the Emperor. He was one who theoretically owed his loyalty, or, or his allegiance, I should perhaps say more cautiously, uh, to the Emperor. But even that was always kind of theoretical. Kynes was... Fremen, right? He was not um, really imperial, not in the sense in which Count Fenring is. So again, the Emperor has been this central figure, but we know very little about him personally. What makes him tick? What's really in it for him? Because, of course, if this book has taught us anything, it's to question the motivation. You know, when, when we know, like, oh, here, here's what this guy is doing and why he's doing it, we've learned to question that, right? That usually there, there are plots within plots within plots. What's, real, what's the Emperor's real plan, right? We've seen the Harkonnen side, and he has been sort of associated with the Harkonnen side. Um, but we know that Baron Harkonnen is trying to play him. How is he trying to play the Baron Harkonnen? What exactly is going on? The place we, the only place we really learn anything about him. Um, and as uh, as as Brian says, uh, um, they give the Emperor those passages give the Emperor more personality than we ever get uh, from him. Absolutely, we will meet the Emperor too. But again, this is the context that we have for him. Um, I I find the epigrams, you know, the chapter epigrams in in Dune to be one of the most remarkable examples of their genre that I know of. Um, in the way in which they form this separate text, well, not a separate text, this separate library of texts, right, which is superimposed upon the main text. Um, but it's not merely snippets of things which contribute to to providing the perception of depth they do that that's one of the things that they do but that's not that's nothing like all that they do sometimes you'll get quotations like that right here's a quotation from an author that you haven't heard of in a book that of course you could never possibly have read um, but which you know sort of gives some kind of background and and and, uh, and sort of gives the impression that there's this wealth of information um, behind the surface that's uh, that's not an unheard of gambit, you know, to make, um, and not an unheard of tool um, to achieve that um, that particular gambit. But um, this book does so much more than that, right? It's like we get not only the character of the narrator, which you know I've talked about before, and which I really love the way in which we are invited to encounter Irulan and to think about Irulan and who she is and what her personality is like and what her motivations are and where her affiliations lie um, and what her attitude is towards Paul. I mean, all of these things that I think we're invited to speculate. Um, and even given you know some data to work with uh, for our speculation there. Um, 
but we get whole other characters introduced, the, the Emperor primarily. Um, the, the majority of what we know about the Emperor, really know about the Emperor. Um, not just surmises about what the Emperor is up to, you know, by Thufir or Duke Leto or something. Um, it's from those introductions. Now, of course, to what extent can we trust that? Who is the intended audience of In My Father's House, right? Um, for whom is Princess Iroan writing this? Um, it sounds like a memoir, right? Memoirs of growing up in the imperial household. Um, that seems to be the tone of the title, right? So it's for the general pu public, right? For people who are curious about the life of royalty, right? All of the all of those of you who wondered what it was like to grow up, you know, a princess or you know, a princess in this in the imperial house. Is it what are the potential political implications of in my father's house? Um, with the if we place the emphasis not on in the house but on my father, right? Um, a book about the previous emperor, you know, the one that Muad'Dib kind of took over, you know, and shunted out. Um, uh, yeah, that, let's think about him and maybe celebrate him, maybe? Um, that's a little bit less obvious if what she's doing is celebrating. Um, um, though, anyway, um, so I do think that there's, you know, one can see potentially political implications uh, of the book in my father's house in the you know the, the sort of the literary and political context that it seems that we're invited to 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 imagine this happening. Um, yeah, yeah. Sean Hyde is thinking of the quotation. He's the he was the father head of a dynasty that stretched back into the dimmest history, but they denied him an heir. Yeah, yeah. They, she, we, Bene Gesserits denied him an heir. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, good. Uh, yeah, Kevin says she could be writing. Uh, he, she could be writing it as a reminder to Paul. Um, you know, it could be a dig at her husband versus her father. That's what I was thinking. It's not. I think it's not cut and dried. You know, uh, it's. You could easily spin it the other way, right? You could easily say, "Oh, this is supposed to be a point of contrast, right? Here's to show you, like the." You know the decadence and the moral weakness of my father's court compared to, a, you know, or or even if we talk about the greatness of my father, that still shows the superlative greatness of Muad'Dib. You know, I mean, it, it, it could easily be spun in that way, right? But that seems to be the point, wouldn't it? Um, wouldn't you imagine that any competent uh, political writer in the in in you know the world of Dune would? Um, be able to write something that could easily be spun in either way, um, so that certainly um, that certainly seems to um, um, that certainly seems to, to to open up possibilities. Carolyn Morehouse makes a really great point. She says the winners write the histories, but who are the final winners? A great question, Carolyn. I actually I I always have that exact objection. Um, when people say, you know, that the winners write the histories, um, yes and no. Um, it depends on exactly how carefully the winners are controlling the historians, right? Uh, I mean, um, and Princess Erewhon here provides a really interesting. Quite, I mean, if she is, 
in any sense subversive, right? If her intentions are are, are at all subversive, you know, she's is, is that, she's not one of the victors. She's not Muad'Dib. If if Muad'Dib, you know, if Paul is the is the victor, he doesn't he doesn't write the histories. Princess Irulan writes the histories, apparently, right? Um, so I do think that it's easy to kind of oversimplify that situation. Um, yeah, yeah. Good. And Tom is pointing out how in my father's house um, can also stress the continuity from one dynasty to the next. That is, of course, the dynasty, in a sense, continues to stretch on into posterity, assuming Princess Irulan gives Muad'Dib any, any sons or any children at all, right? Um, but uh, but yes, exactly, Tom. Presumably, the 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 fact that um, uh, that Muad'Dib is going to be connected with Irulan is 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 part of the uh, part of the claim there. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um, yeah, Gerald uh, Michael says the 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 survivors write the histories. Yes, exactly. Exactly, and not all survivors are propagandists for the victors, right? Um, many are, of course. Uh, propagandists for the victors are likely to to be among the survivors, right? Um, but that's uh, that's not necessarily going to be it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good. Um, okay. Anyway, so I, I do, of course, I want to keep looking at this. We'll come back to this after book three, and I do want to do, uh, you know, a sort of cumulative look. Um, and uh, and you know, I, I said I wanted to be thinking about the patterns a little bit more. And so I just want—I wanted to touch on this briefly in order to get us continuing to think about this, continuing to think about the ways in which those introductions are are acting in the work, thinking about the 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 sort of any interrelationship between those introductions taken sort of on their own, um, you know, running in parallel, in a sense, kind of, I always want to say running above the text. Um, I don't know why I want to use that particular metaphor of altitude, probably in part informed by the fact that it's always at the top of the chapter, but, um, which is a pretty childish reason to want to say above. But perhaps I could come up with a more esoteric reason, also in the sense that it's looking down from the standpoint of history, right? Yeah, that's better. Uh, but anyway, um, so I want us to continue thinking about the way that those two different kind of narrative threads, the book itself and those introductions, are functioning, and continue to think about the kinds of questions that we were asking about this before. What do we make of what? What do we learn about Irulan? What can we learn about the world to come? Um, one of the things that we see established clearly in book clearly, I say flippantly, in book two is Paul's view forwards and backwards. Right, the way in which the the central story of this book is not the underdog making good, right? The you know exile who becomes emperor, the um, you know growing up story of you know the 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 heroic beginnings of. Paul's legendary life, you know, the sort of saint's life of Paul Muad'Dib. There are lots of different ways, right, that this story could be focused. But none of those things is really the heart, I would say, of this story. What's really the heart of this story is Paul at that nexus, right? Paul at that choice of paths, his looking into the future, his consideration of the past, and his desire to prevent 
the future that he sees hurtling towards them. Um, and here we as readers are positioned in a way that is very similar, right? We are seeing into the future, not perfectly. Our view of the future is limited, right? We only get snatches of it. It's like, you know, so there's a way in which those introductory sections work like prescient dreams, right? Um, you know, like we would come to a scene later on and say, I had dreamed of this, right? Um, but maybe we would also say, but in my dream it was different, right? Uh, Idaho was here, right? We see Paul doing that. Maybe if we actually saw the future, it would look different from the glimpses that we get from Princess Irulan. Um, but again, it's one of the things that I think is really fascinating about this book, and that if um, if you read Dune simply as the the rise of Muad'Dib, right? This is the story of how things went from the beginning of the story to you know the come from behind victory is complete. Paul's on top of the world, and everybody lives happily ever. That's not what this story is about. It's not what Dune does. What the, one of the reasons that I find this book so fascinating is that we get the story. We know what happens. Um, or at least we get those glimpses. At least we foreknow what happens. Um, uh, so the way that that gets sort of recreated in our own experience, and this goes back to observations made, and I've now totally forgotten who made these observations two months ago. Um, at the beginning of class when we were talking about the way that the point of view shifts, um, which is kind of irregular, the way that we get this, you know, not an omniscient um, narrator exactly, but rather a narrator who keeps popping into um, really without warning, without from one paragraph to another, um, sometimes from one sentence to another popping from inside one character's head um, to uh, to inside uh, to inside another character's head. Um, that's um, uh, also a sense, I think, in which we have this um, this experience which is like Paul's, you know, being able to see. Remember, this is what happens with Jessica when she becomes a reverend mother, right? Now she she gets the memories, you know, and the thoughts of all these other people. She sort of has access to all of those things. Um, you know, we get all of this access. Anyway, so I, I, I love that. I love how that works, um, and I love thinking about what that shows us. If we, as readers, are like Paul, what is it that we see coming, and what do we think about it, and what? How do we compare with Paul? What's Paul faced with? What's he doing? Where is he headed, and where does that leave us as we move through the book? So, eh, we're going to be focusing on that stuff when we talk about book three. But anyway, all of these things I see, you know, to me are really richly evoked when we start really thinking carefully about those Princess Irulan chapter headings. Um, and uh, um, and what they do for us as readers. So anyway, let's move on. Other questions? This is a question that Matt submitted for last time, and I didn't have time for it in the last uh, one, so I'll save, it. I'll, I'll, I'll save it over. Matt, thank you for this. This is a great observation. Um, Matt says, like Tolkien, Herbert hints at reams of history and backstory in brief passages. It reads like the Azar book, she thought, recalling her studies of the great secrets. Has a manipulator of religions been on Arrakis? 
Manipulator of religions, says Matt. That sounds vaguely awesome. Not to mention that Great Secrets is capitalized, which suggests much. My quick take, in the Dune universe, every meeting is a test and every conversation is a performance. They're not much for the small talk, or perhaps they favor small talk. <laughs> I love that, Matt. Um, this is, I, 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 I really appreciate this. Um, and I've mentioned before, um, one of the things that I sort of struggle with is trying to put my finger on really concrete examples of how Herbert accomplishes um, the sort of atmosphere that I think he accomplishes so well uh, in this book. And I think this is a really neat example. Um, he is certain, uh, Matt is certainly right that um, Herbert is fantastic at at sort of mentioning untold stories and giving the perception of depth. That's Tolkien's phrase. Um, for those of you who aren't really intimately familiar with Tolkien, it's a phrase that Tolkien used not about the Lord of the Rings, but about Beowulf in his criticism. When he's when he so in his criticism of Beowulf, he talks about how Beowulf provides that perception of depth. When you read it, you get this sense of you know, of, of history and legend, you know, lying right behind it, um, even though it's not essential, you know, to the story that you're actually reading. And, of course, many people have gone on to point out that that thing which Tolkien praised in Beowulf is also one of the things that Tolkien himself does supremely well uh, as a writer. Um, it is also one of the great strengths of Herbert, I think. Um, Herbert would be on my short list with Tolkien uh, of as uh, authors who do the perception of depth and untold stories thing really, really well. Um, and uh, by the way, as, as I, I think I said this earlier on, it's one of the reasons why I am so resistant to the sequels, because I really preferred the stories when they were untold. Um, I find when I get there that I don't, I, I don't find them nearly uh, nearly so evocative as the untold stories um, uh, and the uh, the unseen vistas that we get in Dune. And you're right, Kevin. It's me bringing up the sequels, not you this time. I'm just baiting you. See, I'm just baiting you now, Kevin. Uh, it's really kind of mean. Um, anyway, <laughs> anyway, but this is a great example. And I think uh, and I love Matt's point about the capital letters um, uh, in... Uh, in my Tolkien classes, I call those mythic capitals. Uh, when you take a common noun and you put a capital uh, capital letter on it, uh, and it becomes uh, it becomes instantaneously a mythic concept, right? Um, I agree. Recalling her studies of the great secrets, um, that uh, that suddenly becomes a really big deal. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Uh, I, uh, I'll move on. Another observation, a delightful observation uh, made by uh, Eve to get it. Thinking back about the discussion about the OC Bible in one of the lectures, I was reminded of my own impressions when reading Dune for the first time back in my teens. Being Dutch, clearly I couldn't help but wondering, uh, but wonder if the orange part had anything to do with the Netherlands, which indirectly it has, if the connection to Protestantism is a valid one as discussed in, in, in the lecture. This feeling was only enforced by the word Lensrod, which is a Dutch word, or more accurately, a combination of two Dutch words, land, which in itself could, of course, be English, and rod, which means council. When I first read Dune, I read a Dutch translation, and I remember being surprised when I found out that landsrod was not a translation from the English, but was used in the English as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
that's a it's a really neat uh, uh, observation. I, I, I'm you know Eve trying to sort of think of that moment, you know, because it is really funny. You think that there would actually be uh, a bunch of things like that, right? I mean, imagine reading like an Arabic translation of Dune, right? And then going back and reading the English translation, being, oh, oh no, actually, there there, there are actual Arabic words used. Um, uh, it's not just translated in, um, but um, uh, anyway, I. I um, the larger point that I would make uh, sort of building off this is, um, you know, we've talked a couple times about, you know, names and, you know, thinking about the sort of the, uh, some of the observations and discussion which led to my unplanned, like, hour-long rant about allegory a few weeks back. Don't worry, I won't do it again. But um, I... But I um, one of the things that I find really interesting about the world as it's created here is the way in which we do get all of these different relics. And it's one of the reasons that I bring, I bring up the allegory thing because it's one of the things that makes me sort of resistant to allegorical, specifically allegorical readings. Um, because I don't see, again, to go, to go back to the, and I'm, trying, I'm, I'm not going to rant, I promise. Um, going back to sort of the obvious and sort of simplistic thing, right? To say like, oh, see the Fremen, the Fremen, you know, they are um, Arabs, and so therefore he's, you know, this this book is really a book about you know Islam or Middle East politics or something like that, right? Um, you know, Zionism, whatever, wherever you end up wanting to take, you know, your allegorical reading. Um, one of the reasons I'm really resistant to that is that we see, we do see these other. Bits right. Earth is a long time ago. It, I you know believe it seems clearly to be in the history of this world that we're reading about, um, but it's far in the history. Um, and what we get are these you know not necessarily evolutions of language exactly, but we what we get are fragmentary remnants, which don't seem to be thoroughly connected to their their cultural roots exactly. Um, Lansrod is one interesting, you know, so we get this Dutch word, right? We get, you know, the Baron Harkonnen has a Russian name, Vladimir, right? We have uh, Duke Leto Atreides, which both first and last name are Greek names. Um, and you can go back and do the, myth, the mythological thing, but as I think I said before, Neither of Leto Atreides' name, neither Leto nor Atreides, seems to me really apt. Um, you know, when I sort of, it's really tempting. I, you know, a big part of me wants to put on my English major hat, you know, and be like, ah, those are classical references, right? Let me go back and, and, and double-check the myths of who Leto was. By the way, Leto is not Leda. Um, it's a common mistake. Leda is the woman who was raped by Zeus in the form of a swan. That's not whom, whom um, Duke Leda was named after. But anyway, um, so I'm tempted to go back and sort of look those up and think and, and like then take those Greek myths and put them against the story of Leto Atreides. I don't find it works. Um, I really don't... Um, I, I, I don't find any... None of the juxtapositions... I, I've never heard an interpretation that really makes it compelling to me at all. Um, 
there's, I mean, you can do, I mean, again, with Atreides, you can, you can kind of go Trojan War on it, you know, and be kind of like, well, it's like Greek, Greece and Troy with, like, the rivalry with the Harkonnens and uh, something. I, I don't, I don't see it. I don't, I mean, is he Menelaus or is he Agamemnon? Neither. I, Duke Leto is not very much like either one of those. Um, anyway, I, 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 it's, Neil says sometimes a name is just a name. Yeah. Exactly. Patrick, exactly what you're thinking is the direction that I tend to go. When I see those, when those things fail for me, when I can't, when, when taking them as markers which are designed, uh, you know, if the first impulse is to take them as, as, as interpretive cues, right, hints to us as readers um, of how to understand these characters in this story. Um, which often is how, for instance, a classical mythological reference is used by an author, right? Um, but I find that that fails. Usually, generally, fails with most of the um, with most of the uh, of the the references in the book. Instead, I then go Patrick in exactly the direction that you're going. Um, Patrick says there are words showing a link to humanity's past, but for the most part, devoid of their connotation from our history. Like someone took some relatively random words from languages across the, the spectrum and threw them in a blender. Yeah, no, they're not totally random, right? I mean, as 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 Eve points out, Lansrod, that's it's not like they've utterly lost sight of what that word meant, right? It is the council of the lands, you know, it's the council of the minor houses, or of the major houses. So that, um, it fits, right? But, um, but yes, it's more like it shows, it shows that there are still ancient memories of these older times, older times which are our present times, or even our ancient times, um, but yet also shows how distant they are. Yeah, Nancy, uh, Nancy, exactly, Nancy Fosberg says, these references are so old that nobody in this word remembers what they refer to anymore. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I don't get any sense that any of the Atreides remember Menelaus and, Agam and Agamemnon. I don't, I, I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but I, I, I don't recall any reference which suggests even obliquely that they recall the story of the fall of Troy. Um, so, now you know again we do, but again I, that just it doesn't seem to me to work that way. Um, so anyway, I, I think that this was this was uh, 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 you know Eve's comment um, uh, about uh, the Lansrod really kind of reminded me um, about that. Um, yeah, good. Uh, Sean was pointing out to, he he had made a point, and Sean, thanks for reminding me of this. I wasn't able to include it uh, in our slides tonight. We're going to do another part of what you were saying um, that uh, you know she. she um, Princess Irohan uses a German word, you know, concept word. You may remember, and 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 says, Sean, correct me if I'm getting this wrong. Doesn't she say um, this thing, which was called by the ancients, uh, and then she gives, and she, then she she gives the German term. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's again, it shows there is some ancient lore, you know, of our times, you know, of our general era, um, but. Um, um, Anyway, so it's it's uh, there are there are there are some of those kinds of references, but I agree in general they seem to be more or less independent. Um, yeah, good. And Tom Hillman points out her translation of the word is wrong. Yes, exactly. There there there's there's a memory. It's like a memory of a memory, right? It's it's not that they've retained the knowledge. Um, 
there is still in some quarters the knowledge that there was knowledge, right? But it's it's uh, it's 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 not. Um, uh, it's it's still, it, it doesn't really work anymore. But that seems to me um, a really interesting glimpse, a really important piece of context for understanding the relationship between this world and our world. Right? It is on the one hand rooted in our world. There are going to be things that we see with which we can relate. You know, whether it be names or whether it be you know uh, cultural concepts or um, that kind of thing right it Philip also points out the sort of twisted Bible verses things which are almost recognizable Bible verses but not quite some of some of some are straight up Bible verses some are straight up non Bible verses um, some are almost Bible verses yeah I agree Philip the OC Bible is a really good example of that too um, again so we can see how it has roots in what is familiar to us and therefore it gives a kind of air of familiarity to the whole thing and yet it remains foreign and ultimately alien um, uh, good well on the subject of imperial society uh, Brandon loves he had a great question um, to which I hope you guys will all be preparing excellent answers while I read it in book two we get our first glimpse of imperial society outside of Arrakis and the Atre and the Atreides household with Fade Routh's arena combat this society seems to combine elements from a number of different areas, including Middle Ages feudalism, with dukes, barons, fiefdoms, and counts, ancient Roman influences, the arena combat, and names such as the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam, Eastern assassins, we get told that poisoning and other forms of assassination, such as the hunter-seeker that comes after Paul, are quite common, and a quasi-religious organization that wants to be or is the power behind the throne, the Bene Gesserit, are interested in politics, according to the Reverend Mother. My question is, what can we learn about this society by understanding these different components? I would really like to learn how this society came to be, but I doubt we can get that from the text. To some extent, it seems to me sort of similar um, uh, to the language situation, right? We see all of these different political structures and things um, which are sort of familiar, but it's clearly not a lineal descendant, right? Um, you know, I, uh, to take the feudal, the the f the feudalism example that you gave, Brandon, um, it's not like this is just like a return to medieval feudalism, or or you know, I, it's it's not continuous with that at all, even though it shares some of the same vocabulary. Um, but instead, we see some of the same kind of um, uh, kind of impulses, right? Um, the idea that you know knowledge of something. And again, I, I think you know. Again, uh, you know, Brandon, I would point to the titles as you mentioned: um, dukes, barons. The word fiefdom, I think, is a variant. That's an extremely feudal word. Um, um, if they just had. Uh, the link to feudalism would be much deeper under the surface if they didn't keep using the word fief and fiefdom. Um, I agree, that's, that, that vocabulary really seems to color it. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, so how do we understand this? How do we see this? Well, I think there are a couple ways. One is sort of a, a general thing, right? That is to say, we see these things and we recognize them from our own 
you know, cultural and historical understanding because these are human things, right? There are, you know, sort of a finite number of ways in which human societies organize themselves and wouldn't you know, people like continue doing some of the things that they've always done in various forms. So in one sense, it, 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 it provides a connection but on a different kind of level. Connection not in the sense of like, oh, like I still think alike with you, you know, your culture is still in some sense like my culture, but rather you're human, I'm human, we think in similar kind of ways. Um, in some ways, it seems to be, uh, it seems, it seems to, to, to work that way. But at the same time, there are, um, there are ways in which it, it does give us a kind of a glimpse into the way that this society has formed, right? And the limitations, it helps us to understand some of the limitations that are imposed upon these societies by certain of the factors that we come to understand of being in existence. Two, the two things that I would point to right away are things that you guys already have pointed to. So let me read some of your comments there. Um, uh, uh, Roy and Corey Karlinski says, doesn't the Butlerian Jihad act as a scattering of many components of the old world um, so that these worlds are evolved combinations? Uh, yeah, I, Neil at the same time was saying that the impact of the Butlerian Jihad seems to be huge. Yes. Um, Remember that that um, what it seems that one of the consequences of the Butlerian jihad is to how do you say dampen at least technological development. Um, it's one of the things that I think leads to certainly some of the physical. Um, elements of the cultures that we see. One obvious question, right? Um, why, why are we still having so many knife fights this far in the future, right? Um, wouldn't personal combat have uh, advanced a little further than knife fights by this long into the future? Well, yeah, I mean, we have laser guns, right? And we have limitations to laser guns. The laser gun shield interaction is a really, uh, is a really sort of fascinating idea of sort of placing limitation on that kind of thing but um, uh, but it's at the same time there is a dampening you know it's very clear that the development of technology sort of the pace of technological development did not continue at the rate at which it's it's going on right now right um, we are not looking at a future which is the future that we kind of project into right now, right? It's a different future, and the Butlerian Jihad does seem to be the difference maker in that future. Um, when computers are condemned, right? And we don't do computers anymore, and therefore technology goes in a different direction, one of the consequences that we see is in some ways a return to, to other sort of simpler uh, forms of, uh, of, of society as well. Um, they don't ever have anything like, you know, the internet. They don't have, the, their communications are not that great, right? They don't, they don't have computers. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, 
anyway, so I think that there there are a bunch of things that we can that, that we can learn there. The other factor I mentioned too, one is the Butlerian Jihad, and the other is the point that uh, Chris Stevens makes. Um, he says much of society seems to be heavily influenced by the limit on interstellar space travel by the guild's monopoly. Each planet society, to a large extent, seems isolated from each other, except at the level of the nobility. Yeah, the lance rod seems to be one of the only places, I mean, I guess, you know, the Chome directorships, but um, Chome, at the, at the very most, Chome and the, and the Lance Rod are the two places um, that sort of cut across um, the, uh, um, the, the, the whole, the, the cultures. And Brandon, this was one of the things that I was very interested in, in this look inside, um, uh, how do you pronounce it? Gaiety Prime, um, Gaiety Prime, wouldn't be a soft G, would it? Uh, then it would sound like Jedi Prime. I don't. Uh, Gaiety, Gaiety Prime. Um, I, 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 as I've mentioned before, I have very few strong opinions on uh, on uh, Dune pronunciations. Um, by the way. Um, can those of you who 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 are more uh, more steeped within this than I am tell me? Because I've heard I've heard both sides defended very strongly. How do you pronounce the Fremen word for the place where they live? The 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 the, the you know Fremens they live in these villages in the desert, which they call S I E T C H. Two syllables or one? This is my question. I've heard both vehemently defended, either ch or seech. Two syllables? Two syllables? Um, <laughs> I'm getting both sides being argued here. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I like an even split among you. Um, yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> Sarah Lacard says, "Where's a diacritical mark when you need one?" Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. I think um, I think if it were simply um, democratic, it looks like the one-syllable people have it. That's how I was taught. When I first read Dune, and I first read Dune in English class in 11th grade, um, I was taught Seech. Um, so I've always pronounced it that way. Um, I, I, Kevin is very adamant against that. Um, anyway. <laughs> Sorry I asked. I'll just carry on trying to avoid saying the word. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, I know this is a hot button topic. It seems to be anyway, from everything that I've seen. Um, but um, anyway, back to Chris Stevens' excellent point about uh, the guild, which led me to Giddy Prime, which led me to pronunciation. Okay, I've retraced my steps. Um, I do. I agree that the arena scene is fascinating for this reason, um, because I mean we've seen Baron Harkonnen. You know, we've seen like the you know the Harkonnen war room way early on, and that was outside a glimpse outside. But that was really just a glimpse outside into like the persona of of Baron Harkonnen and sort of the Harkonnen world, not the Harkonnen, um, n not the Harkonnen homeworld, 
right? Um, not the um, um, uh, not the um, the the as I say, you know, the culture of what their you know what their people are like, how they how they function, how they run, um, and it is it is a fascinating. Um, it is a fascinating kind of picture, and I agree. There doesn't seem to be any um, any overarching. Um, the only overarching structure seems to be this structure of houses major and houses minor. Um, but as far as the actual culture within each fief, there seem to be there seems to be quite a variety. Um, anyway, Brandon in his email was admitting that this question was a huge question and much more of a paper topic than a simple discussion question but I thought I'd bring it up anyway um, uh, art this is another question left over from last time um, question about uh, Fremen in your understanding are the Fremen a racial ethnic group or are they a cultural group of anyone living in the desert specifically it seems that kinds is supposed to be a non Fremen is there even a term for that um, but Paul perceives that he is secretly I guess, a Fremen. Um, does that mean Kynes is a Fremen who passes as a non-Fremen, or who has lived around them so much that he has assimilated? Um, uh, it is... Um, uh, it's And this becomes clearer as we go. It's a little bit unfair. He submitted this question at the end of book one. It becomes a little clearer uh, in, uh, in, in, in book two. Um, in some sense, it seems that this... Um, uh, you can, I think, understand the the, the word in in, in the, the broader sort of cultural group sense, but I think it's pretty clear from within this story that it's it's a race, it's a racial ethnic group. They talk about the the racial descent of the Fremen and where they came from, you know, what planet they came from before they moved there and everything. Um, and uh, he has um, he has gone native, right? As Sean is reminding me, that is that that phrase is used. Um, but um, uh, they do seem to be they do seem to be racially distinct um, from the other people uh, on Arrakis, and not simply culturally distinct by the fact that they live out in the in the deep desert. Um, and I, I don't think that anybody who well see it's kind of hard to say. I was about to say I don't think that anybody else living out in the desert would be considered a Fremen, certainly by the Fremen. But of course, nobody else besides the Fremen live out in the deep desert. So how would we know? Um, but but still, I, I think the connection between the connection between kinds and the Fremen is clearly not just by association, right? Not in that kind of cultural sense. It's not just that he is now like the Fremen, he dresses like the Fremen, acts like the Fremen, lives out with the Fremen, so he's now like an honorary Fremen. He has gone native in a more thoroughgoing way. Um, he has... Uh, um, he has... Um, I mean, he's he has... Does he have a Fremen parent? I think he marries a Fremen, but I don't think he has any Fremen parentage himself, unless I'm misremembering that. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, kinds... Kinds is half Fremen. Sorry, I'm, I, I I I can't remember. I know I, I know that his wife was Fremen. That's why he's 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 Cheney's dad. But um, but I'm I'm not remembering this detail. I hate it when I forget details. So his mom 
was Fremen then? Um, okay. Okay. Um, yeah, his father was the first planetary ecologist. Okay. So then, so he married, his father married a Fremen woman, so he is also racially Fremen, which would help explain why he is, because we see them willing to accept people. They're willing to accept Duncan, right? When Duncan Idaho goes among them, and Stilgar, you know, when Stilgar accepts Duncan Idaho's service, he clearly takes that very seriously, right? I mean, he's 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 adopting them in the familial sense, um, but uh, um, but uh, but you know, he accepts him into the tribe, um, and you can see this also in the uh, scorn with which Stilgar refers to Idaho when Idaho goes back to the Duke, right? When he leaves the tribe, um, clearly. That was a that was a screw up. Another screw, one of several screw ups, one of several of Duke Leto's screw ups with the Fremen. Right? Um, re remember the one which he was almost making about demanding to see the imperial bases that Paul was like, "Don't do this." Right? Um, um, so clearly, um, um, uh, the the that you know the, his recall of Duncan Idaho. Because you remember Leto was like, "Oh, we'll see, you know." We'll send somebody else in his place who's like, you know, tell him to find somebody who's like as trusted as he is and they can sub in for him and he can come home. Stilgar was obviously having none of that, right? You know, that was clearly an error in judgment um, on Duke Leto's part. Liet is clearly beyond that. So him being racially connected to the tribe as well seems to be. Uh, certainly seems to seems to fit there. Okay, good. Yeah, several several confirmations um, uh, that yes, Kynes is uh, is in fact by blood half Fremen as well. Um, okay, so so I, I think that that's I think that that's that's relatively uh, um, uh, clear. Um, but um, so that that's what Paul is that's what Paul is perceiving that Kynes is not just known to the Fremen and respected among them. Um, basically, Paul sees through Liet Kynes' double life, right? Because he is really living, um, really living a double life. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, one of the questions that this leads up to is the question of Paul's status among the Fremen, right? Um, it's clear that you don't have to be born among them to be accepted among them. Um, when Paul is given, you know, a private name, you know, when he, the, his name Usul, right? You know, that shall be his name among them. He is accepted into the tribe, right? He is he is part of, uh, um, you know, he is he is he is he's accepted as one of them, um, even though he's not connected with them by blood, even though he is explicitly you know, aiming to become Duke, to become the Atreides Duke again, among other things. Um, but anyway, let's um, let's talk about the Fenrings. Nancy says, I must admit that reading the Fenrings chapter, I found myself wondering why the book couldn't be about them instead. This is unfair, but they were really intriguing to me. Particularly interesting was their private humming language. 
This creates more opportunities in the book for interchanges that are never fully transparent to the reader, but are even less so to the other characters. It becomes clear by the end of the chapter what sorts of things they might be saying to each other about Fade Rautha, but there's never a real translation for most of the things they're saying, and the Baron doesn't seem to catch on. Even when the humming language is translated, their meaning is still somewhat coded. Lady Fenring's observation, sometime I must recount for you the legend of the phoenix, can only be understood with reference to the phoenix, so you, have to first, so you first have to know that, and then there's another layer involved in actually applying that legend to the issues at hand. She seems to have the Atreides in mind, but that relies on the inferences of the listener. She's not responsible for that meaning if you take it, or for, for, for the meaning you take from it. The Count also uses the humming language even when the lady isn't around. I'm not sure whether this is because he likes to keep a running commentary to himself, which nobody can understand, which is an idea that I love, or whether it's because he wants to give the impression that this is simply how he talks so that nobody else will suspect the existence of his secret language. Maybe both. The latter makes most sense, but the former seems to fit in with his role as the semi-detached observer of the follies of other houses. He's not really detached, of course. He's there to forward his own ends, but he does present himself as if he were above these petty squabbles. Um, yes, yes. Um, it's... Uh, um, oh, Sean Hyde asks me, what do I think of the Fenring speech in the audiobook? I don't like it. I, it's okay. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying I could do it better. Um, I think they could do a little bit more. Um, I don't like how he just does the um, 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 um. I think, again, not that I would perform it better because I'm not a performer, but um, if I trying to imagine the ideal performance of the Fenring's humming language, it should sound slightly more. I would want it to be slightly more linguistic. It still has to sound like just humming and mumbling, right? But um, there's not enough alteration of inflection because um, you've got to think when it's being written, like the one that I quoted in the in the in the subtitle in the subheading of the uh, of this slide. You know, the um, 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 ah, I have to think, that's not just like one protracted word, right? The one, two, three, four, five, six different syllables of that first hum, right, have to be at least different sort of syllables or inflection. I mean, there has to be some combination of those. I, I, I don't think it can be just repetition. Mm, 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 mm. I don't think you can make them exactly the same. Um, I would want them to be varied in some sense. Brandon Young suggests probably different notes. It could well be tonal. Um, that would be a really good way to do it, I think. You know, um, yeah, Brandon, I like that. That's my favorite. That, that's my favorite interpretation. You know, to be something like um, 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 um. so it still sounds like he's just wandering, but there's more to hang um, meaning on. You know, signification um, through uh, through uh, um, through tonal inflection, um, as well as vowel sound and and uh, and and various potential sort of syntactic combinations. Um, uh, a linguistic study of the Fenring's humming language would be really cool. Not that much 
primary text. You know, it's not very well attested here, but uh, um, but but there does need to be enough there. Yes, Patrick says you need enough data to hang a language off. Exactly, you do um, enough to really get meaning, and especially since Nancy, as you point out, there are those few passages when we hear the translation, right? Um, but um, uh, but um, the translation suggests that it's pretty. Com it's not just a. Um, you know, we see at times th there are a bunch of different languages used, right? We get the Atreides battle language and the Harkonnen languages, um, but uh, but it's Atreides battle language, of course, suggesting that the Atreides regular language and the Atreides battle language are different. Um, but um, um, but there's also you think of like the hand signals that they have. Um, I don't think that the humming. Based on the translation, the humming is clearly not just a simple set of symbols or a series of something like you could do in 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 hand signals, um, the kind of the kind of hand signals that they seem to be suggesting. I know you can do, you know, a full language, um, you know, in 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 sign language, but that's clearly not what they're doing. I think in with the hand signals that they're flashing each other, um, but anyhow. Um, yeah, Trevor Brierly asks, is it really a full language or just the sort of thing that develops between close friends or married couples? Um, yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, certainly, you know, if you're married to somebody for a long time and working closely with that person, there are a lot of things that you can communicate with very few markers, right? Um, but see, again, I think the translation prevents us. Um, it's not just, oh, he's humming in that particular tone. I know that means that he's thinking... X, right? It's not just that. Um, they're actually carrying on um, conversation. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree with Sean that the Fenring language is much more complex. But anyway, to move on to the larger point that Nancy not only pointing out the coolness of their humming language, which Nancy, I'm very glad that you did because I would have hated to uh, to skip over that. Um, but um, to I think Nancy makes a wonderful point of the way in which the narrator is drawing our attention to the humming language of the Fenrings seems to bring to the surface something which is already implicit in this scene and in so much of Dune. That is the different layers of meaning um, which varying participants in the scene understand to varying degrees, right? This is always true. You know, we looked at some of this to some extent when we were looking at the, uh, you know, the Atreides dinner party, um, uh, you know, uh, in Arakeen right before the catastrophe. Um, you know, that's certainly one moment where we, you know, we get all of these plots within plots and, you know, second and third meanings uh, attached to what you say and when you say it and why and to whom, um, very few of which are actually expressed, you know, are actually explained to us um, uh, by the narrator. Um, but here we see, yeah, as Nancy uh, adds uh, uh, here live, um, uh, Fenring is really the master of this. He uses it with intent. Exactly. Um, I love the fact, the way that this was worked out, right? That is, 
we first get him humming, right? And then we're told that it's a, you know we're told it's a language. We get this translation, um, and then knowing that it's a language, it he just sounds like a funny talking guy, right? Like Count Fenring as some kind of weird speech impediment or something. Having had that signaled to us that this is a, a secret language, we know for a fact that Count Fenring is saying two things at once. There is, you know, so with him, what is only implied everywhere else is made literal, right? He is literally saying two things at the same time. What are we saying? One thing on the surface, but that is being overlaid by a completely different message in a different language, right? Which the person he's speaking to doesn't understand. And I agree with Nancy in being fascinated by the fact that he carries on doing that um, uh, when he's talking to uh, the Baron alone. And Nancy, you're certainly right. The most plausible explanation of that is he's got to maintain the fiction that he has a speech impediment, right? That this is just how he talks. If he switches off the humming, there's going to be some suspicion, right? Um, but but I agree with you, Nancy, not only in really liking other interpretations even better than that, but it seems to me imagining some higher level of deviousness um, seems entirely fitting with the scene, right? Um, it would seem perfect, perfect, if there were actually some import to his humming, even when he's in the cone of silence with the Baron, and it seems that nobody who can hear him can interpret his her his humming. His lady can't hear him, so why? So, to whom is he delivering a message? What is the purpose of it? I don't know, but maybe it has one. Maybe he's uh, recording it. I mean, he there is a moment where he switches it off, right? As Philip is reminding us, he doesn't do it constantly all the time, but he is. Uh, um, he is, as uh, Roy says, he's living on, you know, like Paul, he's he's living on two planes uh, all the time. Um, yeah, yeah, we can see ways in which he he is he's 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 very explicitly, very consciously operating on two levels, right? At least two levels. There may be even more than that. Um, and the conversations between him and the Baron are fascinating examples of the kind of you know, interpretation and interpretation, us interpreting people, interpreting other people's interpretations of things, the way in which, you know, the sort of the rich complexity of these things, um, you know, how, how, uh, how thick in that way it gets at times um, is really fun um, uh, and really, um, uh, really kind of mind boggling sometimes. Um, let me, um, um, let me look at uh, a couple other passages. This sort of segued me to three passages that I didn't get to at the end of class last time, because um, uh, they're in that same chapter. They weren't focused on the Fenrings. Um, they were focused instead on, on the Baron. The Count emitted a short, barking laugh. You think you could harness the Fremen? No, no humming, right? There were never enough of them for that, the Baron said. But the killing has made the rest of my population uneasy. It's reaching the point where I'm considering another solution to the Arakeen problem, my dear Fenring. And I must confess the Emperor deserves credit for the inspiration. Ah, I don't know how to read that exactly. Are there supposed to be different inflections on the... Is that three syllables? 
ah, 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 maybe. Tono, Brandon, right? Tono. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to sit here humming for the whole rest of class. <clears throat> you see, Count, I have the Emperor's prison planet, Seleucus Secundus, to inspire me. The Count stared at him with glittering intensity. What possible connection is there between Arrakis and Seleucus Secundus? The Baron felt the alertness in Fenring's eyes, said, no connection yet. What's going on here? What's going on here? That's the question, right? That's the question that the two of them are asking each other. It sound, this sounds like probably um, the Baron is screwing up. That seems to me to be the sort of clearest interpretation here. Leto saw the connection. Thufar Hawat, currently the Baron's mentat, knows that you know has figured out the connection as well between the Sardaukar and Seleucus Secundus, right? Um, the idea that Arrakis could be used to train soldiers who are... Uh, and notice how this comes right on the heels of the Count saying, you think you can harness the Fremen? And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm thinking of emulating Seleucus Secundus on Dune instead. And now, especially since Fenring has heard the reports from the Sardaukar about how ferocious the Fremen really are, even though the Baron is appearing to... This is, um, uh, this is a really cool moment, right? Because we can see, we hear what the Baron's saying. We can see something, we don't need the cues from the Count, from Count Fenring, right? We know um, already the connection between, or the similarity at least, between Arrakis and Seleucus Secundus. And so when we hear the Baron say this, we're like, ooh, the Baron doesn't understand what he's saying. But then we can see that Count Fenring can understand, knows the implications of what thinks he knows the implications of what the Baron is saying, but does the Baron really know what the Baron is saying here? Is he actually trying to send a brushback message to the Emperor through Count Fenring? Um, does he, or but and if so, why would he do that, and why do that now? These kinds of interpretation of le- uh, in, in, in continual interpretation of levels above levels um, is one of the things that makes this book so uh, so fascinating. But this seems to be a mistake. Um, but you know, Nancy, I was thinking again of this passage, um, uh, even just with a little ah in the middle of it. There, uh, that's the tonal shift I'm going to go with. Um, uh, Leading you to wonder, wait, was that just an, an an exclamation, or did that mean something? Is this like, is that, uh, is that like you know Count Fenring cussing to himself in Fenring speak? I don't even know, um, or making some kind of commentary. I could, I would total, I could totally believe it. By the way, if Count Fenring had some kind of recording device and he were actually recording the conversation with commentary uh, for for his wife's benefit, you know, even while they're in the cone of silence, I could totally imagine that. Um, but anyway, um, right, exactly, Roy, you're exactly anticipating me, because, of course, we not only have, what's the Baron doing? But, wait a second, is the Baron being manipulated by Thufur Hawat? Has this idea of the parallel between Arrakis and Seleucus Secundus been suggested to the Baron in hopes that he will make a gaffe like this to Count Fenring so that the Emperor will come in and squash the Baron like a bug? 
That seems to me really likely. I think that it's it's uh, it's right. Tom is asking: Is it a mistake in tactics or a mistake of understanding, or is it a success in tactics, uh, uh, specifically potentially a success in tactics by uh, by Thufur Hawat? Um, uh, Thufur Hawat seems to be a much more effective mentat when he's working for the Harkonnens, um, even when, or perhaps especially when, he seems potentially to be working against them. Um, of course, I'm sure you knew that I was uh, that I was going to talk about this passage, right? You knew I couldn't pass this by. The houses minor wait for you to lead them. The count said, nodding toward the people they approached. Double meaning, double meaning. The Baron thought, um, which seems to be the counterpart to when the Baron earlier on in the conversation thought straight talk, right? Yeah. Straight talk, Baron. Yeah, it's just what you're getting. Anyway, from Count Fenry. Yeah. Uh-huh. <clears throat> he looked up at the new talismans flanking the exit to his hall. The mounted bull's head and the oil painting of the old Duke Atreides, the late Duke Leto's father. They filled the Baron with an odd sense of foreboding, and he wondered what thoughts these talismans had inspired in the Duke Leto as they hung in the halls of Caledon and then on Arrakis, the bravura father and the head of the bull that had killed him. Neil, that's a fantastic question. I didn't even think of that, but you're totally right. Neil says, wait, are the bull's head and the duke's father not facing each other? And no, they don't seem to be. I overlooked that, uh, 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 Neil, but I think you're right. It says they're flanking the exit. Um, flanking the exit to his hall. It's possible that they're on the opposite walls on either side of the door, but flanking would seem to suggest that they're both facing outward, right, on either side, you know, well, face it towards you, on either side of the door, right, facing outwards with the door in the middle, presumably. That's interesting. If that's true, it's a fairly slender lead to go on, Neil, but if we, we run with it, it does suggest an interesting shift, right? that the Baron's relationship to these two symbols is different from Duke Leto's relationship to those two symbols. The fact of their facing each other across the room was clearly essential. He insisted not just that they be present, but that they be, um, that they be in opposition, right? That they be on opposite walls from each other. Jessica says it doesn't matter which goes on which wall, but they have to be facing each other. Um, Good. Tom Hillman says now they're both looking at the Baron, right? Um, yes. Now they're gaining. They're 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 uh, they're ganging up on you. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Brian Yoder says I love how the Baron wonders what Leto thought, and I'm wondering what both of them think. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, these seem to be. Um, The question of what, you know, what, again, we, we were pretty thoroughly instructed to view these things symbolically earlier on, right? Um, I mean, I, 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 I think we were, you know, we, we uh, I'd like to think that it was not just my own peculiar insistence upon this. The text really was prompting us to, uh, to think symbolically about those two um, in some pretty heavy-handed ways. 
I can't stop thinking about them symbolically now. Um, is this just another example of, you know, the Baron keeping a trophy, maybe as trophies of other houses, you know, as uh, Liz, is, uh, Liz is pointing out, um, from other houses, quite likely he could be sending a message to his visitors in this way. You know, this is like the, you know, like the, the, the you know, like the, the notches on, on, you know, on, on my gun, um, you know, in a sense. Um, yeah, yeah, it shows that he wins, right? Does he have them both facing outwards because he's beaten, like in a sense he's beaten them both, right? He's taken out the, into, you know, if this sort of tension between the bull and uh, the bravura father um, are, you know, sort of at the heart of the Atreides' ancestral dignity, now they're both just doing reverence to him, right? Um, maybe, maybe he tells himself that. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. James uh, James Stevens says, the old duke and the bull have new meaning. Uh, now that we know the old duke had his back turned when he was killed. In Leto's house, he never turned his back on the bull again. Fantastic, James. Um, I agree. We do go back to that scene and think about that differently. It does add that idea of the detail that we got from Thufer of the old duke turning his back on the bull and getting Gordon from behind um, does impose a different meaning on that, right? Um, bravura, but face-to-face, -face, right? You're not going to sneak up on me. And especially in the Arakeen context, um, we have... That, that has even more significance, right? We were talking about the way in which the bullfight seems to be potentially a, par a parallel to what Duke Leto is doing on Arrakis, right? That he's just goading the bull. Um, he's putting himself in harm's way and putting on a show for the sake of the crowd, the lance rod, in, in, in his case. Um, yes, um, but with a difference, as James is saying, right? But I'm facing the bull. I, I know where the bull is. I'm keeping my eye on the bull, right? Um, he's not going to sneak up on me. Well, at least that was the plan. Um, Kevin, that is fantastic. Kevin Morgan, Morgan, one of my favorite comments of the evening. Um, uh, the Duke, the old Duke, might not have his back to the bull, but he's no longer facing it. But he does have his back to a door, doesn't he? Uh, as Thufer would warn, he should never do. Um, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. And as Roy uh, uh, says, th since they're flanking the exit, so the Baron has his back to them every time he enters the room, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It would seem the Baron doesn't get it, exactly. Clearly the symbols have a different meaning for him, right? Um, the portrait of the Duke's father in mockery, right? Look, here's the posturing Atreides, right? The bravura Atreides that I took down, um, uh, and you know, uh, you know, here's here's yeah. So here's uh, here's the Duke Atreides posturing in his fancy clothes, right? Um, but uh, you know, but I but I took him down, um, you know, the the family down, and then the bull, right? Um, the, here's the bull that killed him. So I'm going to put the bull that killed him right next to the 
right next to the Duke. You know, does he identify with the bull? You know, does he? Uh, um, you know, does he sort of relish the idea of preserving the? You know, like this is in memorial of the bull that uh, um, that uh, that that killed the Atreides. You know, does he want to suggest that juxtaposition? Does even he, in some sense, see the connection between himself and the bull that we were suggesting before? Um, but um, but he doesn't really seem to have thought it through. If they're side by side, uh, and uh, if their back is to a door, uh, uh, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, good. Ooh, Kevin says uh, it's uh, it's also the last time Thufir failed. It's a memorial to the two main failures um, of Thufir and his machinations to make it better. Um, yeah, possibly, possibly. Um, one last. Uh, point, and this is uh, up to Fade Rotha. Now, let my dear family watch, Fade Rotha thought. Let them think on this slave who tried to turn the knife he thought poisoned and use it against me. Let them wonder how a gladiator could come into this arena ready for such an attempt, and let them always be aware that they cannot know for sure which of my hands carries the poison. Um, Fade Rotha is consciously enacting well, it's not exactly an allegory. It's like an allegory. Um, certainly, he is suggesting a, an allegorical interpretation of the poisoned knife, right? Um, he wants them to think about his, the 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 black the poisoned black knife at least as a metaphor, right? Um, but um, uh, but anyway, um, this is um, uh, I, I I you know uh, Nancy, this is the passage that I was thinking about when you were talking about the Fenrings and the way in which the Fenrings' private language and the the overt layering of meaning, even unknown meaning, on top of other meaning, um, unknown speech juxtaposed with, in fact, intermingled with um, recognized speech, the way in which this prompts us to sort of see the levels and sort of wonder what's, you know, to, to, to ask what's going on and try to sort through all the different potential implications and, uh, and hints and allusions. In the midst of this scene, where we've been primed for that by the Fenrings, we get Fade Ratha, right? Enacting this scene, orchestrating this scene, and Fade Ratha is continually focused on its interpretation, right? Um, he is very self-consciously playing out this scene, attempting to manipulate the interpretation of himself and of other factors um, through the events that are enacted. But of course, we see things unexpected to him happen. And once that, once he, Fade Ratha himself, has sort of pushed us down that road, right, of interpreting, you know, sort of uh, uh, interpreting Every detail of, of, of action in this way, um, we can sort of see, I think, um, you know, we begin to see more things. And um, Roy, I think it was, was it you that made the point before about, um, about Thufer putting the, yes, it was you, Roy, I, I remember correctly. Um, uh, about Thufir manipulating the Baron into making a gaffe in front of Count Fenring, right? Um, I think that we can see a similar thing here, right? Um, 
Sadratha believes he is the master of ceremonies of this particular performance, right? But it seems possible that he is in fact the tool and not the speaker here. Um, you know, that what is happening, to, what he is doing and what is happening to him as he is doing what he is doing is itself part of an overall message and perhaps even a particular message to the Fenrings. Um, it's really cool. There is so much that um, it's one of the things that I, again, and I really admire about Herbert is how much he says without saying it, without going back and explaining it later. Um, okay, one more, and then I'll let you go. Um, yeah, oh, let me just touch on this. Kevin, you're absolutely right. Um, we know that uh, uh, Fade Routh's interpretation is very limited, right? Um, as Kevin Morgan points out, he isn't even thinking of the whole. He doesn't mention the Fenrings. Just his family, there's still another side of the whole that he can't manipulate, or at least that he's failing to take into account, right? Um, we do see, I think, I agree, especially in the context of the intrigue between the Fenrings and the Baron that we've been looking at already in the chapter, the way in which... Fade Routh, is in, his whole scope of interpretation is limited, right? We see past him, and that's one of the things that I think, that, that is, we're invited to see not only how devious and scheming he is, but also to see his limitations, and the limitations of his vision, and therefore to see other things perhaps behind it, and to suspect that maybe, uh, again, as I said before, he is not the principal, but a tool. Anyway, Sean Hyde on the Adab. You were discussing the Adab that comes upon Jessica, and I had an alternate explanation. Let's start them with the Missionaria Protectiva. Through some agent or agents, Arrakis has been seeded with prophecy in preparation for the need of the Bene Gesserit. We find out a little later, when we meet the Reverend Mother Romalo, that is the Fremen Reverend Mother who dies, um, that at least one of the Bene Gesserit has always used this. This sets up the scene, sorry, at least one of the Bene Gesserit has already used this, sorry. This sets up the scene where Jessica is looking for some prophetic saying to satisfy the Fremen, presumably from her Bene Gesserit training, that will mesh with the legends laid down before by the Missionaria Protectiva. Suddenly, a daub comes upon her. I find it extremely interesting that this is translated as the demanding memory. It is this that makes me think that this is not inspired by something outside her, but from within her. That word memory seems to imply that this is something encountered before, information she was given or that she came across, sort of like Paul's recalling of data. Another explanation I thought of, though I can't find any direct evidence for this happening elsewhere in the book, is that perhaps the origin is not from her memory, but from her body's memory. This is how the Reverend Mother describes the powers of a Reverend Mother to Paul. It could be that this memory originated from even the Bene Gesserit who created these prophecies in the first place. The main point for all that rambling was that I actually do think that this is, mere char this is more charlatanism. She is still spouting things that presumably come from the Missionaria Protectiva to pacify the Fremen. She just doesn't understand what she is saying. Okay. Okay, Sean. I see what you're saying. I think it's a really good point. But then I double-cross you. Uh, I can one-up that, though, right? Yes, it's possible that the demanding memory is, in some sense, her body's memory, that this is, that she is coming up with Bene Gesserit things, in this sense. That's possible. 
but isn't it also possible that the Bene Gesserits themselves did this for a reason outside themselves? And in fact, your own argument about the Reverend Mothers uh, and this body's memory that they talk about, to me, suggests that, right? Remember, it was in his conversations with the Reverend Mother Helen, or, you know, guys Helen Mohayam, that um, uh, Paul is infected, remember that verb of weighed a lot of stress on, um, uh, which seems warranted even if only due to the repetition of it, infected with terrible purpose, right? Um, it's, I think that in this, as in other things, the Bene Gesserit are deluded about the extent to which they are the principles and not merely tools. They think that they're the principles. I'm less sure that they are. Um, it seems to me they are instruments, not principles. Um, so Sean, where I go is back one step further than that and say, um, where did the Missionaria Protectiva come from? Where did they get their stuff from? Are they just making it up? Is it just, you know, religious myths created in test tubes in a laboratory? Um, or was there an element of adab associated with that as well? Did they also get that from somewhere? Because it kind of starts to sound like the demanding memory, the terrible purpose, the race consciousness. Um, when talking, you know, as we were during that class about this coming from outside her, um, I think, Sean, you're right to put pressure on that because there's a sense in which I don't mean that exactly. Um, that is to say, I don't mean that it's like an alien communication, you know. Um, it's not like I'm going to get in touch with whoever is communicating me from without communicating to me from without. Uh, that doesn't seem to me exactly right. Um, there is, I think, in Jessica, and I also think in Paul, that sense of the um, other, right? That this is not them. It's something outside their own consciousness. Um, it's not just something that they're doing. It's something that's being done to them. But that doesn't mean it's being done by a wholly external force. Paul identifies the terrible purpose with the race consciousness, in which case it's not completely, by definition, outside them, right? Because they're part of the race, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Yeah. Uh, all right. Kevin's getting all poetic here. Uh, Kevin Morgan says, everyone thinks they're driving the bus, but that's not the case. The bus is a sandworm that they're all standing on. And the, and the sandworm might be Paul. <laughs> I, 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 I'd have to unpack that a little bit, I think, Kevin. Uh, but I see where you're going there. Um, uh, 
that image of the Fremen riding on the backs of the worms is an interesting metaphor for this. And think about that. We'll come back to that next time. Um, but um, anyway, um, let's. Um, I should let you go. I don't want to. I don't, don't want to keep you irresponsibly late here tonight. Um, next time we will move on. I will. Uh, I will. We saw. We saw a glimpse. We saw a glimpse of Fremen riding on the back of sandworms. Remember, uh, Jessica saw it's no, totally not a spoiler. We saw that. We saw glimpses of that. Um, anyway. Um, uh, okay. So, as I was saying, uh, next week we're going to move on to book three. Uh, the books get shorter as we go along, so we're only going to do two class sessions. We're going to read the first half of book three. Um, Think more about the Reverend Mother stuff. Go back and review the scene with Jessica and the Reverend Mother. We're going to talk about that a little bit in the context of what we see uh, in Book Three. We're also going to be looking at uh, at uh, at uh, Fremen Paul. Um, Neil had asked a, a really good question by email, which I didn't get a chance to sort of uh, um, uh, to talk about before, um, but. Uh, uh, Neil raised the issue of, in sort of looking forward, um, we're going to see a time gap at the beginning, you know, between book two and book three. We didn't get a time gap between book one and book two. Book two and book three, there is a time gap. Why? What's the effect of that? It's one of the only, one of the only, the only real narrative discontinuity that we get in this book. Um, so I agree with Neil that that seems significant. Think about that. What, what is the impact on the story of that gap? There are some relatively simple um, ways that we can understand that, but I think, but you know, certainly we want to be thinking about it in the context of all of the stuff, all the time stuff that we were looking at there in book two. Um, so uh, anyway. Let's uh, let's let's definitely think about that in connection. We'll, we'll we'll come back to that next time. Thanks very much, everybody. Don't forget the uh, Mythgard Academy donation page. Um, I urge you to spread the word about that. You know, let's uh, let's go out and see if we can get you know more people involved in supporting this. And you know, this would you know that would be that would be a lot of fun. So um, so sp spread that around, and we will. Uh, uh, well, you know, keep you can keep checking in uh, on our page. You can see the tally of uh, how far we've gone. I was just uh, looking at it before class, and we're doing we're already, uh, you know, uh, going on uh, twenty percent of the way to our initial goal uh, in day one. So that's it's really exciting. So um, anyway, so keep that in mind, and thanks very much to everybody uh, who has already donated. So thanks very much, everybody, and I'll see you guys next week. Good night now. <laughs>